Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Isn't technology amazing? We're going live to the United Kingdom. Andrew Collins is a writer and historian living there. He is the author of more than a dozen books that challenge the way we perceive the past. In 2008, Andrew and his colleague Nigel Skinner Simpson discovered a previously unrecorded cave complex beneath the pyramids of Giza, which has brought him worldwide acclaim. We'll talk a little bit about that in terms of just a few of his books. Gobekli Tepe, he wrote in 2014, Atlantis and the Caribbean in 2016, The Cygnus Key in 2018, The Denisovan Origins uh, last year. Andrew, welcome back to the program. Your, your name always comes up. It's good to have you back. Well, that's good to hear. Um, yes, good to uh, be chatting George. We've got some great discoveries to talk to you about today. You know, changing everything that we know about prehistoric monuments and their functions in the past and it's coming from my own country of england um and relates to probably the most well-known um monument that we've got and that's stonehenge uh-huh. um, because you know recent uh, new study has shown that one of the functions of stonehenge could well be to generate sound in other words there is a possibility the stonehenge is a sonic temple uh, and this goes hand-in-hand hand with other discoveries in the same landscape, just two miles away, at this place called Durrington Walls, of the discovery of 20 huge, great cylindrical shafts cut into the bedrock, uh, which are about 35 feet across, about 17 feet deep. Jeez. And these, quite separately, are being associated with sound and the creation of sound. And what we are looking at at the moment is the possibility that many of the different monuments around Stonehenge were actually created to generate sound, but not just audible sound, but very low-frequency sound, which would penetrate through the earth and be carried, perhaps for miles, you know, affecting people, and perhaps even triggering the manifestation of what we call today plasma UFOs. Um, and, you know, and that this was seen by people in the past as the return of the ancestors. The area where Stonehenge is actually located uh, is somewhere that what we call UFOs today, but these objects have been seen for hundreds of years, have been seen repeatedly. And there's a relationship, and all of this seems to be in some way related together, and that's the mystery we're trying to unravel now. How old do you think Stonehenge is, Andrew? Well, the Stonehenge that we see uh, is probably around 5,000 years old. My but there was certainly uh, a monument on the site going back at least 10,000 years. But Stonehenge is just one of dozens of huge monuments in that landscape you know, that include things like long barrows, which are these huge stone structures that you can get inside, that burials would have been uh, placed within, rituals would have been done. There are these massive rings of, of timber posts uh, that were constructed around uh, 5,000 years ago, which, you know, look like, I mean, something just something out of a science fa- fantasy. Um, and we also think that they may have been used now for sound, creating sound, that people would have stood by the side of them and banged them with something hard, um, you know, like a, uh, almost like a baseball bat or something in rhythm and harmony, creating sound. And that this would have permeated uh, 
right the way across Salisbury Plain, which is where Stonehenge is located, you know, creating a cacophony that we, you know, is something that we've just not ever considered before. And how big is the circle, the Stonehenge circle? Uh, the Stonehenge circle um, is, oh, let me just work out, it's about 400 feet across. Um, so it's quite huge. And the work that has been done there recently by uh, the University of Salford, um, a doctor, um, Trevor Cox there, what he's done is to recreate Stonehenge inside the university at one-twelfth its size. So he's actually recreated every stone you know, he's put the, the lintels back on the top, which are the, 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 the flat stones that, mm-hmm. that used to be on there, but are no longer on most of the stones. And what he's done is he's done a series of experiments um, to try and generate different frequencies of sound to see how it would uh, affect the stones. And what he's found is that the sound would actually reverberate back into the center and not be heard beyond the stones itself suggesting very strongly that the idea was to generate sound actually inside the stones and that this was not for some kind of display, you know, where thousands of people are, you know, would right, stand around right. the outside and listen to some kind of concert or something like that, that this was purely a ritual function, a function that had a purpose. Um, and also that they discovered that it would be mostly low-frequency sounds that would be made by very deep horns, you know, like the Tibetans play. Um, and you've got to ask yourself, why would you do this? You know, what, 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 what is the purpose of this? Um, it's, sim- it's not simply for ceremony. You know, there's something much deeper going on here. Would these ceremonies be for extraterrestrials or UFOs or for earthlings? Well, I mean, obviously we then come on to the question of of what are UFOs? Um, And, I mean, in my early days, I probably, like most people, assumed that UFOs were just like extraterrestrial spacecraft coming here from another star system. Right, of course. And that if you saw one passing over, it was no different to, to looking... As an, uh, an airliner just crossing through the sky. But we've realized that the, this is not the case, that most UFOs are probably made of a very subtle substance that we refer to as plasma, which is the full state of matter, uh, which is something that fills probably 99.5% of the actual universe. I mean, most of the universe is not the states of matter that, that we we know and respect in in this world, you know, solids, liquids and gases, but they actually made of something much more subtle, which which we call plasma. And we think that many UFOs are actually plasma, that they are actually generated or created by very extreme geologies in the Earth, most likely fault lines, um, you know, the presence also of of specific minerals, uh, also metal ores, that this creates the right garden for the manifestation of light, which is why all the way around the world you have locations, we call them portal locations or earth portals, where these lights are generated. Um, And somewhere like Stonehenge is exactly this. We've got reports of these lights being seen 
for hundreds of years. So we know that the phenomena is, if you like, natural to the area. That's not to say that it's not intelligent or sentient, because there is lots of evidence to suggest these UFOs are actually alive, that they are sentient beings in their own right. But what's so interesting is that the sound that's generated at places like Stonehenge, because it's extremely low frequency, will affect the geology of the Earth. Uh, and this could trigger what's known as piezoelectricity. And this is basically the, the way that if you put pressure on certain types of rocks, it will release subatomic particles called electrons, and these will flow and will be released into the air. And that these, this is the stuff that creates plasma, and that this will create manifestations of these lights. Uh, in many ways, they, 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 they act as, um, as, as, as environments to, for almost like uh, sentient beings or intelligences to actually manifest within. Uh, I, mean, I know this might sound quite new to a lot of people, but this is the way this subject is going. We're beginning to realize that we're not purely dealing here with extraterrestrials. We're dealing with what might be referred to as ultra-terrestrials, you know, or even... Uh, multi-dimensional beings that exist in a much deeper level of existence but that can manifest in these plasma environments for the temporary period that they exist. Could the Stonehenge be some kind of power generator, Andrew? I think that's exactly what it is. Um, I think that you know, the power that's being generated is something that we would see in terms of sound vibration. Um, and uh, the rituals that were going on there, and I, I, if we can call them rituals, um, was to generate that energy. Uh, and we have to say, why, why would you do this? Um, and I think the answer is that these people had a strong belief in the ancestors. The ancestors were everything to them. You know, that was their past. You know, that was the, the thing that influenced them. And... I believe that what they were doing was trying to call back the ancestors. They would probably do this at certain times of year. Um, the evidence from the archaeology of the area tends to suggest that the, air, the time around midwinter um, was particularly important for their, their rituals and festivals, and that they would prepare, probably across a period of weeks, to actually conduct these rituals, and then they would generate the sound at the various locations and the ver using the various types of monument and generate this low-frequency sound, which would be carried through the earth very much like a seismic wave, um, and that this would not only be felt by humans, because, you know, this is something that we more experience than actually hear. In other words, it could trigger altered states of consciousness. It could trigger a sense of otherworldly connection with the ancestors. But I believe that what's also going on here is that the mysterious lights would appear around this time, which we know that they do appear around the time of midwinter in that area, and that this was all part of these rituals. And when these lights appeared in the sky, they would be interpreted in terms of the return of the ancestors. Interesting take. Now, if Stonehenge was created 4,500 years ago, which would have put it around 25 B.C., 2,500 B.C., yeah. how would they have moved those huge blocks of stone that encompasses Stonehenge? 
Well, that's obviously a, a mystery which is, you know, the, the, the greatest... Like the pyramids. ...solved, really, because, I mean, what's so interesting is that many of the stones that we use to create Stonehenge, which are known as the blue stones, um, because they, you know, they, they, they appear that way, particularly when wet, they actually came from West Wales, which is, you know, at least a couple of hundred miles away. I think it's even more than that. So they were dragged from there... They were probably put on boats, you know, carried round, brought up a river, uh, the River Avon, which goes very close to Stonehenge. They were then dragged from there uh, into place. And you have to ask yourself, why would you bring stones from that, that distance? Well, if you, they, they've actually found the quarries now in West Wales, where they, where they came from. And these sites, the sites where the quarries were, were already sacred. They were already being used by the very earliest Neolithic peoples and possibly even earlier than that. So what it's believed, and this is even by the archaeologists, is that the quarry site was already sacred, already holy, and that maybe, you know, UFOs or transformative experiences, um, uh, you know, took place there. And that to bring those stones was to transport that energy all the way to Salisbury Plain and where the stones were re-erected into, you know, Stonehenge and that that power would then be transferred to that location. And what's also interesting is that there are other types of stone used to create Stonehenge, what's known as sarsen stones, which is a, a very hard type of sandstone. And this comes from a location about 15 miles away um, called Westwoods, and again, this has only recently been discovered and been, you know, the, the information has only recently gone out there. What's so interesting about Westwoods is that this is a place well known for, for UFO appearances and some very strange encounters. You know, it's almost like this magical wood, and they went and they got the stones from there. Now, you know, they could have gotten from anywhere, so why did they go to this particular wood, which for decades, and again, arguably for centuries, if not thousands of years, mysterious lights and strange objects and encounters have actually taken place. It's all interlinked. You know, these people were not doing anything random at all. Mm -hmm. Everything was, you know, was, 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 uh, was, was decided long before the creation of Stonehenge. Who were the indigenous people of 2500 BC, Andrew? Well, um, there was actually about three different types of people um, in the Stonehenge landscape at that time. You had the, the indigenous people that had been there probably for many thousands of years. We call them the Longbarrow people because they created these, these incredible monuments called Longbarrows about 3,500 BC. Um, but then around 3,000 to 2,600 BC, there was an incoming people who came all the way from Scotland, from the Orkney Islands. Um, and we call these the Grooveware people because of the particular style of pots that they were creating. Um, and the, these people that were in the Orkney Islands arrived in the Stonehenge landscape, bringing this particular style of ceramics. And they created various other huge great monuments around Britain on their way down, including Avebury, New, Newgrange in Ireland, 
uh, places in, in Anglesey in Wales, uh, places in, in Yorkshire in the north of, of England. And what's so interesting about all of these is that they are all places where UFOs have been seen on a frequent basis for many decades. That's, again. that's intriguing. And did all these three groups, did they all cohabit with each other? Um, well, well, did one die off and the other one came or um, something like that? I mean, the, 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 the third type of people that was coming in from the continent were known as the Beaker people. Um, and the reason for this is that they would bury their dead uh, inside, uh, they would cremate them and, and then bury them inside uh, these these uh, tombs in, in using beakers. Uh-huh. And they would seem to have been a lot more violent than the existing people. And I think that there was, uh, there was quite a, probably a lot of battles and skirmishes going on, but then eventually some kind of truce would have um, prevailed. Um, and these people would have coexisted with each other, you know, the, the, but, you know, I think initially it would have been quite violent. Now tell me more about these UFO sightings that ironically appear at these structures. Well, I mean, the, the idea that there's some relationship between uh, prehistoric sites made both of stone and wood is something that goes back probably to the sort of hippie days of the 1960s. I mean, um, writers like John Michel wrote an incredible book called The View Over Atlantis, um, which came out, I think, in 1967 originally. Uh, and he, you know, sort of said, look, you know, there is a relationship between these beautiful stone and, and earthen monuments um, and the fact that UFOs seem to be seen in the same vicinity. Uh, it was felt that the UFOs may even use the so-called ley lines, you know, the idea that many of these sites were laid out in lines to actually, um, you know, navigate. Now, I think that today we can see that as, as, a, as a naive fault, but the connection between the appearance of these mysterious lights, um, some of which were very large, very exotic in, in their appearance, um, and the presence of these monuments, I think, is very important. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.